What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the statement, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And we want to understand properly what it is that this statement means. And if we do, if we will understand it properly, it will open up to us a wonderful understanding of the manner or the way in which God has brought salvation to us. But if we understand this statement incorrectly, it will drive us away from this gospel. It will bring upon us a sense of not God's salvation, but God's condemnation. Right up front, here's what we have to understand. This is not primarily a reference to the attribute of God's righteousness. This is not primarily a reference to God's righteousness. Now, God is righteous. He always does what is right, and he also demands what is right from us. But this revelation alone will not bring us into the good news. It will only heap upon us bad news. If you want to understand the righteousness of God and the way that God then extends his righteousness to us and how we're to live, read the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a distillation of the righteousness of God being applied to the way we should live and the righteousness that God requires of us as well. But the Ten Commandments is something different from. The law is something far different from the gospel that we know through Jesus Christ. And so what Paul means here when he says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God which comes by faith is what we're going to give ourselves to try to understand. And it's something quite different than simply understanding this as an attribute or a revelation of God's righteousness. I'm going to speak about this some more, but before we do, let's just remember that Paul has just prior to this said that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Last week we spoke about what this salvation entails. Believing and receiving this gospel brings to an individual an expression of the gospel's power that delivers them from the guilt of their sin into the forgiveness of sins. It delivers them from the defilement and stain of sin into the holiness and purity that God would give them. It delivers them from the bondage of sin into freedom. And it delivers them from the punishment, the alienation, and the everlasting ruin of sin into a relationship with God and into everlasting life. That's what salvation is. And it comes to us by way of the gospel and believing that gospel. And the gospel is basically this, that the eternal Son of God has come in love for sinners, and that's who we are. And as a human being, Jesus Christ has lived a sinless and perfect life. He lived the life that we could not live ourselves, and he died in our place the death that we deserve to die. And as God in the flesh, he paid the price that makes available to us forgiveness from God. And then Christ rose again from the dead to place all those who will believe in him and trust in him into his righteousness and into the payment that he has made on our behalf for our sins. It is this work that he's done that is good news. It's this work that's the gospel. And when you believe that, it's this work that brings to us salvation. It's this work that brings to us in belief, forgiveness and cleansing and freedom and deliverance from punishment into a relationship, an everlasting relationship with the eternal God. And no wonder, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this. It's the power of God unto salvation. So now Paul says in verse 17, a very short statement which encompasses the whole theme of the book of Romans. And so it's quite important that you understand it. We're going to look at it, but then we're going to wonderfully be able to dive into the reality of that in a saturated way over a period of time as Paul begins to then expound that truth further and further through the book of Romans. 
In verse 16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In verse 17, Paul gives us the ingredient of that power. How it is that the gospel brings to us or what it is in the gospel that has within it, latent within it, this power that saves us and delivers us. What he says it reveals is the righteousness of God through faith. The power of the gospel to save us is found in the fact that in it is the righteousness of God. And now we have to ask some other questions, and this will be the points of our message. We have to ask, well, what is this righteousness of God that it's referring to? How does that work for us? Then the next question we have to ask is, in what way is it revealed to us? What does it mean that it's been revealed to us? The final question we have to ask is, what is this faith? through which this righteousness is revealed to us. And these are the three questions we need to ask and we need to try to answer. And so let's go to it right away. And the first question is, what is the righteousness of God that Paul is referring to here? And as I just said, it is not primarily a statement that God is righteous. This is not a declaration merely of the attribute of God as a righteous God. Martin Luther, when he first came to this text, understood this text in that way. He understood that the text was saying that God has revealed his righteousness to us and his righteous standards for us. And that understanding by Martin Luther nearly drove him mad, nearly drove him crazy. He thought this phrase referred to the absolute character of God's moral righteousness or his exactitude to do all things that are right and good and his command that we should follow suit and live in that righteousness. When we say that God is righteous... We're saying that he is the standard for his own moral laws and that those standards are perfect and that God perfectly keeps those standards himself. He's righteous. God is the absolute standard for moral right and moral wrong. And God's own actions perfectly accord with his standard. What he asks of us is what God completely fulfills in himself. He's righteous in every way. And believing that this is what Paul was referring to, Luther then thought, well, then faith must be having the eyes of faith to see and understand the righteousness of God and then to follow from that righteousness to seek to live a righteous and good life that God would give us. So a righteous person is a person whose faith looks to God for the right way to live and then goes out and lives it. Now, do you think that was gospel to Luther? Having come to that conclusion, was he relieved to know that he knew the right way that he had to live in order to please a righteous God? No, no, it it brought him under the heap of his own condemnation. Though his eyes could behold the right ways of God and that God was entirely righteous, he found that he was incapable of living up to that standard. And the more he peered into this, the more dire his situation became the more he began to understand how rudderly righteous God was and the exact nature of God's standard for him, the further and further he is driven into a sense of his own sinfulness. It didn't bring him to the power of the gospel. It brought him into condemnation. You got to read the passage there in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that word power of God basically is to be compared to the righteousness of God. They're similar to one another. But the power of God leads to a good news. It leads to a good result. It leads to salvation. But the righteousness of God was going in the opposite direction for him. Understanding the righteousness of God in this way, he wasn't being led into salvation. He was was being led into further and further condemnation. As a result, having learned the character of God's righteousness and seeing the character of God's pure and perfect law for him and knowing that he did not measure up in any way to that and that he failed in thought and mind and action, 
Luther began to hate the notion of the righteousness of God. It haunted him. It condemned him. He wanted to blot it out from his mind, but he couldn't, and it nearly drove him mad. So what do we say to this? Well, we say clearly, the righteousness of God, understood in this way, is not good news, and it cannot be what Paul is speaking of and speaking to in this passage of Scripture. It has to be something other than merely a revelation of God's perfect moral attributes or character and the application of that perfect moral attribute to the way in which we live. There's much more that we have to understand in what Paul is saying here, but primarily what we must see here is that this reference to God's righteousness through salvation is the righteous way in which God provides salvation. When the Bible says that the gospel is the righteousness of God, it is saying that it is the righteous way in which God provides salvation to sinners without compromising his own holy standards. God saves us righteously. God provides salvation for us in such a way that it does not compromise his own righteous character, but instead his salvation affirms that God is righteous in every way. The very way that God brings salvation accords with his character. As such, the righteousness of God and the salvation of God are linked together. God cannot, understand this, God cannot save us in any way but in a righteous way. It has to fulfill his own righteous law and his own righteous demands. The psalmist understood this. The psalmist recognized, however God was going to accomplish this, that God's salvation would have to fit or have to meet the requirement of his own righteousness. And so in Psalm 98 too, the psalmist sings or teaches the people to sing, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. These two have to go together. Salvation and righteousness have to go together. And uh, David understood this as well. David is longing for God to bring him salvation, and yet he knows that this salvation has to meet and satisfy the righteous requirements of who God is. David in Psalm 51 is praying that God would forgive him of a horrific sin. And he's seeking that God would wash from him the guilt that he has from that sin. He actually prays that God would cleanse him and wash away and remove from him the guilt of shedding another innocent person's blood. He's praying that God would forgive him of murder. How can God justly forgive the unjust of the grave and horrible acts of injustice? That's what David is asking for. That's what David is asking God to do. And yet David understands that by faith he understands that this is possible. That God has promised this. So God must have a way of accomplishing it. And so David, as he prays for God to purge him of his blood guiltiness, also seeks for God to save him in a righteous manner. This is what David says in Psalm 51 verse 14 at the height of his prayer. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. We know what that means. We know what he's done. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. God, save me from this, and I'll praise you for your righteousness. David puts it another way in Psalm 65, verse 3, the very same statement. He says this, 
when iniquities prevail against me, you know, when sin is coming upon me and it's overwhelming me and I'm succumbing to temptation. And actually, what does it mean when iniquities prevail against you? I'll give you another phrase that David uses. It's in Psalm 38.4. There he says, my iniquities have gone over my head. I'm in over my head in sin. He says they're too heavy a burden for me to carry. There's a picture of iniquities prevailing against you. David again says in Psalm 65, 3 then, When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You provide atonement for it. You provide a punishment for it. And then in verse 5, David exalts in this reality because he knows what's behind it. He says, By awesome deeds you answer us with your righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. God, you will righteously take away our unrighteousness. And this, David is saying, is the hope of all the earth. And this is what we need above everything else. And this is what we cannot do for ourselves. And only God can provide because we're all unrighteousness. And he's full of truth and righteousness. You have to bring forgiveness and cleansing and salvation to me in a righteous way. You think about this and you take all of the major religions of the world today and whatever we might say of how false they are, they recognize that there was a need to somehow address this matter of sin in a way that answered and fulfilled justice or righteousness. And so they didn't come up with trivial answers. They came up with in-depth and difficult answers and they were the wrong answer because they still didn't go to God and the righteousness of God to provide the answer. They still look within themselves. But... Seeking to atone for their sins was finding a way to deal with their sins. They dealt with it in a rather deep and profound way. It's different than people today in their natural religions today and the shallowness of our world today. We just want to feel good for a second. And so we think we can just kind of brush off our sins with a light little dusting and it's all good and we'll be fine. But they recognized and they thought more about these things and they had to say things and teach things that appealed to a mass of people. You get the whole group of people together and they really understand the nature of sin, they know that they can't come up with cheap answers. And so they came up with an answer to deal with sin that was rather significant. They knew that you'd have to do things to gain merit. You'd have to live the right life. You'd have to correct your pattern of living. And then they knew that they weren't gaining righteousness. They weren't making headway. Even the most devout of them were trying to follow these religious standards and they were falling behind. And so they thought, well, then there's going to be a purgatory, for example where all you do is suffer for these deeds until you pay them and you'll have to suffer a long time. If you're a Muslim and you miss one hour of call to prayer, it's 100,000 years in purgatory. Right? You'll have to deal with it in drastic ways. It'll take you a while, take your time. Or, or they came up with the idea of reincarnation. You didn't gain enough merit, so if you didn't gain enough merit, you're going to be reincarnated, but you're not going to progress ahead. You're not going to go into a good world. You're going to go into an evil world. You're going to regress. You're not going to move ahead in your evolution of reincarnation. You're going to go back to being a cockroach. You're going to have cockroach life until you can work this out. Well, none of them actually could give the testimony or story of anyone who had worked it out. They had to project it out into some soul progression, out in some eternal state in which the soul was walking along, trying to push the rock up a hill and continue losing ground. But somewhere along the line, somewhere out there, maybe their righteousness was provided for. But you see this? They took sin seriously. And they recognized for it to be dealt with, it had to be dealt with in a full and serious way. And they were wrong. 
because they thought they could deal with it. They just thought, well, it's just going to take us more time than we've got here. So we're just going to project this out a little further, out into the by and by. Well, in a sense, we have to admit, at least they were thinking more deeply about these things and more honest about these things than people with cheap, superficial religions have today. But Paul is explaining to us here how the righteous God who hates sin provides a righteous forgiveness for sinners. Paul is before us to explain this mystery, how, how God can justly forgive the unjust. And Paul says the gospel reveals how this is done, how God justly forgives the unjust of their unjust acts and sins. And he says the righteousness of God is the way that God does this. God does this in a way that provides salvation with, for sinners without compromising his holy standards. And here's how he does it. God righteously exacts a payment for all of our sins, but he exacts it upon the sinless man, Jesus Christ, who is in very nature the righteous God. He exacts it upon himself. Every sin, every broken law must be punished. Not one will be winked at. Not one breaking of the law will be turned aside. There will be an exacting punishment on all of it. Not one broken law will be ignored in the salvation that God provides for us. All of it will be righteously paid for. Every part of the penalty will be enacted. But it will be enacted upon the Lord Jesus Christ when he suffers and dies for us in our place on the cross. The sinless one, the righteous one, will bear God's righteous judgment and wrath and justice against our sins. And you see here, the right, this righteous salvation is for us and to us through the suffering of the sinless one on our behalf so that the just God may forgive our injustices justly. But this is more than just forgiveness. This salvation is more than just dealing with our sins in that way. It's not simply being saved from sin, but it's being brought into the presence of a holy God. And so we're only halfway there. And so what God also has devised is to bring us into his holy, righteous presence so that we might stand before him, not only by atoning and paying for our sins himself, but then giving to us all the credit, all of the value, all of the covering of the perfect, sinless righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, so that in Jesus Christ and by faith in Jesus Christ, he bestows upon us his righteousness, his perfect, complete moral merit, his fulfilling in every point, in every exact way, all of the laws and holy demands of God as a human being. And so 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says of the believer in Jesus Christ that Jesus has become to us righteousness. He's become to us righteousness. It's him. It's his life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts together these two ideas. The, the idea of the atoning or suffering for our sins so we have forgiveness and the righteousness of God that allows us to stand before God. These two completed in Christ. Christ sinlessly suffering for our sins and then bestowing upon us his perfections. There 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, speaking of Jesus Christ, for he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God saves us righteously, fitting us for his presence, putting on us who trust in him all the credit 
of the sinlessness, the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is something you can never gain in your flesh. This is something that you'll never realize through an endless progression or regression of reincarnation. This is something that will never be accomplished by whatever suffering you might engage in throughout purgatory or an endless hell. You'll never bring it to yourself. You'll never merit it. You'll never gain it. You'll never deserve it. It's something only God could accomplish. It's something only the absolute righteous God could provide for. And it's something we could only receive if he freely gave it to us because we have nothing to offer for it but our unrighteousness. And this is what he's done. And this is what he's provided it. And it's by faith that God confers upon us this righteousness so that we might attain the perfect righteousness necessary to be in his presence. And it's also in faith in him that God confers upon us the payments that Christ made for us on the cross, dying for our sins. When Luther's eyes were opened to see that this was the great truth behind that phrase, the righteousness of God, that phrase that had haunted him and condemned him, and that phrase that he had learned to hate, when he realized that the term was actually an expression of how the righteous God makes righteous the unrighteous, it became a word and a term of the greatest rejoicing and the greatest glory and the high salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. It's the word of the Reformation. It's the hope that we have. It's the only hope that we have. It's a righteous God who righteouses us, who justifies us by his own saving act. I don't know if we always believe that. I don't know if we actually grab hold of that. If it would, I've said this before, it would change the language we use. We sometimes come to Jesus and believe, Jesus, you've got to save me. You've got to deliver me. And then I'll do better. And I'll try harder. Here's a word that is heard all the time with individuals. Grow up in the church. Learn patterns of behavior and how they ought to live and what they ought to do. And they say, I'm trying. I'm trying this. I'm trying to read my Bible. I'm trying to pray more. I'm trying to, try. I'm trying to believe. I'm trying to live a certain way. I'm trying. And it's, oh, that's not the word of the gospel. That's the word of a person who's trying to attain the righteousness of God by their behavior and following a standard. The word of the gospel is, I'm trusting completely trusting in what he has provided for me. It's a life of trust. It's a life of trust, not a life of try. Oh, we go wrong here. This is the next thing we should understand here. The second thing that will help us understand this passage is, what does it mean by the righteousness of God is revealed to us? This means something more than just understanding this with our minds. This means something more than just having this intellectual understanding that a righteous God has found a way to righteously forgive the unrighteous. That a just God has found a way to take the unjust in their unjust acts and provide forgiveness and cleansing for them. It's more than just intellectually understanding these things. It's a revelation because it is revealed to us through faith. It's something that we come to understand as we embrace and trust it. It has a certain kind of revelatory energy that meets us and encounters us as we embrace it in trust and full trust of him. It's the day that your labors come to an end to establish your own righteousness and you rest in the complete another righteousness that God has accomplished for you. It's the day when you stop regretting and ruining and wishing you could turn back the clock and do things differently to make up for all the mistakes and sins that you committed and instead you see them 
laid hold of by the Savior and totally and completely cast upon him and rolled away into his grave and gone forever. It's a great day. It's a wonderful day. The revealing of the righteousness of God through salvation when you trust in him and it dawns on you and you realize that. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Paul describes the effects, the resonating expression of this revealing to our hearts of the righteousness of God. There he says, therefore having been justified by faith. Listen to those words. Therefore having been justified by faith. Let me give you a different word for justified. It will be the same meaning, exact same meaning. Therefore having been righteous by faith. Therefore having been made righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope and the glory of God. These words are no longer just theory. They're no longer wonderful ideas and thoughts. There's something that God has revealed with saving power to our lives. We've been made right before Him, right before Him, and we have peace with Him. And, oh, you know a man who's realized this or a woman who's realized this because the influence of that is joy. And hope that abounds. And a rush into the presence of God because you know you can stand before Him and live and abide and enjoy Him and experience Him because you are His and He is yours. You're right before Him. It's the experiential language that the Lord Jesus speaks when He says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, all of you are burdened by your sins or burdened by your efforts to purge yourself from your sins. Come to me. And I'll give you rest. It's resting in his righteousness. It's resting in the full provision he's made for us and the finished work that he's done for us. And the truth that God has provided a righteous salvation of the gospel is revealed in the life of the one who has faith in him. It's revealed to us when we have faith in him. It changes our lives entirely. Oh. It changes all the efforts we've made in the past, but now it gives life to the life we live in the future. How can I help but love him when he's loved me so, right? Now, being set free from the bondage of my sins and the bondage to just keep laving away to overcome my sins, I'm free unencumbered from the guilt and the shame of my sin to live to the glory of God and His honor and for His praises. Here's the last one. We have to ask, what is this faith? Verse 16 says, it's the power of God unto salvation for all or everyone who believes. Here in verse 17 it says, from faith to faith, or it says, the just shall live by faith. You know, the excuse of unbelievers is usually something like this. He says, you know, I, I just wish I had your faith. I had this experience not... But a year ago, I, I went to a golf tournament with some of my old high school chums, and they were all carrying along their beer. Every time the cart came by, they got another beer, so they were getting a little bit, you know, sloppy-eyed. And then before long, one of them says, you know, Joe, he's a man of great faith. They think our faith is somehow unique and wonderful, and yeah, he's got faith. We don't have it, but he has faith. Well, maybe that's why they have to inebriate themselves so much. But the fact is that they think that our faith is some extraordinary expression that's not available to themselves. Something that somehow they've not come by and they cannot acquire. And, but I want to remind you this. 
that the kind of faith that God is calling for here is not something we're told in the Bible to pray for. It's not something we're told in the Bible to hope might come our way. It's something that God has commanded of us. He's commanded of us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's a command. Paul just writes about it in Romans chapter 1 verse 5. Saying that he is individual, he's a servant to the gospel of Christ and his mission is to command or call people to the obedience of the faith. An obedience to the faith. God commands this faith as an obedient response to what he has revealed to all people. Now, that only makes sense that God commands faith because God understands that he has provided all the necessary information to justify that command to faith. God will not command a faith that he hasn't given good reason for, that he hasn't given good evidence for. And So here's what we can say about faith, understanding that. What is this faith? We may say that faith is that trust that we exercise in a thing after we have developed a reasonable degree of certitude in that thing. It's that trust that we exercise in the thing after we've developed a reasonable certitude in that thing. There's something that tells us this is certainly true. And then we trust in it. We believe in it. We rest in it. I have, at this time of year, traveled to Indonesia on a number of occasions. And I don't know why, but for a number of years, I was, I've changed my pattern behavior. But I used to go in July. And so, terrible time to go to Indonesia is in July. Very hot. You know, you don't want to go to countries where the satellite dishes are pointing straight up, you know. And it's very hot and very muggy. And what you don't understand in that time of year, and the people are not very big, is that things get soft in the heat. And so, on one occasion, I was in a little community sitting out in the courtyard area and the dirt around the house and I was pointed to a chair to sit in. It was one of those plastic chairs. I sat down in the plastic chair and, well, it had gotten softened by the heat and before long I was still on top of the chair but it was all the way on the ground. It it had totally melted underneath me. It was a misplaced faith. It was a misplaced faith in that chair. I got up after that and they tried to give me other chairs and I began to, at this point in time, investigate the chairs until I found a metal chair that demonstrated that it had a, a certain rigidity about it and I sat it down and I, then I, having somehow been somewhat certain, having a high degree of certitude that it was going to be able to endure my weight and that the ground underneath it was hard enough to endure its legs, I sat down upon that chair and continued and began to engage in a conversation with the people in this little area that we were in. Well, that's how faith works. Faith is enacted trust in what you believe in. It's a thing that we barter with every day of our lives. Every person, every individual has faith and lives by faith every single day. They draw conclusions on things that they can be reasonably sure of, that they have some degree of certitude, and then having determined whatever the degree of certitude is, they drop some measure of faith in order to engage or trust in themselves in those things. Hear this. God commands faith. He commands faith in the righteous salvation that he has provided. And therefore we must understand that in God's mind, and let's not argue with it, he has given sufficient information and evidence to make certified or to give a high, high degree of certitude that this is what we must trust in, that we must give our lives to. In fact, verse 18 will tell us 
that the way that men skirt around being able to lend themselves and give themselves to a full faith in God is not because they lack the evidence and information. The only way they deny giving faith is because they deny the evidence and they suppress the evidence and they won't encounter that evidence. God has convicted men, for example, and the Holy Spirit is doing this right now, that they're all sinners and everyone knows they're sinners. God convicts men by his Holy Spirit that there needs to be a standard of righteousness to be met and they know they haven't met that standard of righteousness. God convicts men that because of this and this fact, the Spirit tells us, the Bible tells us, the Lord Jesus tells us in John 16 verses 8 through 11, that the Holy Spirit then convicts men of judgment. There's judgment coming upon them. There's sin in their life. There's a lack of righteousness in their life. There's judgment upon them. And then the Bible reveals to us that the Holy Spirit goes out to assure or convict people that what Christ has done fulfills the requirements that need to be met for our sin and our lack of righteousness and the judgment we're facing, that he's fulfilled it all in his great work. And if we deny him and we ignore him and reject him, we bring ourselves under greater sin and we fall further from righteousness and we bring upon ourselves greater judgment and the Spirit of God is driving that home to the heart of all men and making that known to all men to such an extent and to such a degree. And of course as well, this testimony of the righteous salvation that God has provided in the Son, Jesus Christ, is affirmed by his resurrection from the dead. All these things are affirmed and attested to deep within the heart of an individual to such a degree that the only way they can skirt a response, a faithful response to that information, that truth, is to suppress it and to deny disobediently the faith that God is calling for. Faith is an act of obedience, of invested trust in what God has revealed. It follows the evidence that God has provided for us a righteous way of salvation. He has righteously provided for our salvation. The nature of every false religion is to deny the righteous salvation of God and to seek a self-righteous, self-satisfying salvation by our own actions, by our own effort, by our own merit. Our default is still to flee from God and to deify ourselves. We will find a way to overcome our own sins and if we can't, we will be our own executioners. And we will declare what the judgment will be. And it's sin. And it's rebellion. And it still crops up in our lives even after we say we trust in Jesus Christ. Because we resist defaulting back to the complete righteousness of God bringing to us a satisfactory, just forgiveness in and of himself alone. Every time you try to make up for your sins and try to prove yourself in your own righteousness, you are fleeing from the righteous salvation of God instead of resting in it. Instead of resting in it. What a wonderful truth. This passage says from faith to faith. and There's a lot of debate as to what that means. Does that mean it's this person believes and this person believes and this person believes so it's from faith to faith is a historical account of it being faith that moved from you know Abraham and went down in succession through all the men who trusted and believed in him and I think the best way to understand from faith to faith is this when I am saved and when I am delivered it comes at the moment when my faith completely trusts in all that God has righteously accomplished for me through Jesus Christ and his salvation and then my life begins a journey where I move from that point on by one measure of faith after another measure of faith after another measure of faith. I receive Jesus as my Savior and that I live in His salvation from day to day. I receive Him as my righteousness and I live from day to day anchored and counting on and exalting in His righteousness and not my own. 
from faith to faith. My sanctification comes to me as I don't avail myself of my own powers and my own instincts and my own wisdom, but as I find God's truth revealed in the word and I let that word pour over me and I find that that word reveals that the one who has fulfilled all of these commands is Jesus himself and he lives in me by faith. And I receive him and I trust in him to be the one to lead me in victory and triumph and exalt in the victory and triumph I have in Christ. And I claim it by faith and I grow from faith to faith to faith to the righteous salvation that is God alone and is all of God and none of myself. One of the ways we have to proclaim this is we have to take our hands off of trying to establish our own righteousness before others. We have to sink ourselves down in the righteousness that comes from God alone through Jesus Christ. He gets glory from this. And this way, we lead people and we declare before others this great salvation. I've said this before a number of times. The Bible says that we're to give an answer for the hope that lies within us to anyone who asks us. And for the professing believer, they need to give that answer to themselves more than anybody else on a regular basis. What is the hope that lies within you? Is it in a just salvation that comes through Christ alone? A righteous God who righteous you in all of your unrighteousness? Let's lean on that. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, our own words, our own enthusiasm, our own delight in these truths is inadequate to communicate the simple, stored up, concentrated, satisfying, complete, work that has been done for us through Jesus Christ. Every effort to address your sin, every attempt to prove yourself worthy, every attempt to run away from it, all of it in vain. God, our Savior, outstretched, sinless, pure, suffering for us ready to open up to us an endless stream of water and life and blood to cleanse us and wash us in his own righteousness. Lord Jesus, let us find no other salvation than here and then let us not be ashamed forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.